All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Don't Give Up the Ship podcast, Trash Panda Talks edition. Um, today, I am interviewing with Jeremy Williams. He is a fantastic dude. I was introduced to him via the Foundry. I got to participate in the Foundry course a couple weeks ago, which I want to talk more about, but I'm, I'm going to have a couple more uh, people interviewed soon and phenomenal class highly recommend that every single person that has the ability to go and get involved do that the enlisted leadership foundation is definitely doing it right and i wish i would have had a lot of this um material years ago you ever been walking through the navy exchange and wonder why all the naval pride and heritage gear is horrifically ugly and you wouldn't actually wear it have you ever wanted some really cool gear and you just don't know where to go? Well, I got you, fam. Go to dgutsapparel.com immediately. Get yourself some Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. Uh, we're working on new designs all the time, open to ideas. We're trying to create a brand that uh, lets you display that pride, but doesn't make you cringe. Uh, also, if you're willing to and you're able to, please go to patreon.com slash podcast. Pick one of the five tiers and become a patron today. And so Jeremy is one of the guys that came and, and did a portion and it was just amazing. And I, I'm pretty sure I reached out to him before our his his little session with us was even over because it was that good and I just wanted more. So um, this is my interview with him. Uh, I'll let him explain the story. Really, we were just hanging out. It was a great time. There will definitely be more, um, but I hope you all enjoy it. I definitely had a fantastic time. Okay, so... I'm gonna give a little bit um, on why I wanted you here. So a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago now, I was in the Foundry class run by the Enlisted Leadership Foundation and you had a topic and you came and spoke to us and it was incredible. And I think I might've emailed you before it was officially even over to be like, oh my God, can we talk more? Um, so I wanna cover a lot of those things, but first just tell us like who you are and and just a little background of, of what makes you you. Well, thanks for having me, Ariana. I, I'm always honored to speak to fellow shipmates, Marines, um, service members, veterans about my experience. Um, <clears throat> I'm just a dude like you that decided to join the military and serve his country. Um, I have a family history of service in my country. I had a great uncle. Okay, my fifth great-grandfather was a sergeant in the Ohio Infantry that fought in the War of 1812. Found that found that research out uh, a couple of years ago, and I was talking to my son about it. But then I started to like go down the family tree. We had a great uncle and my grandfather in World War II. Um, to me and another cousin, were both in Iraq three times. There were six deployments between the two of us, and I had another um, uncle on my dad's side that was in Vietnam. My mom's brother was in Vietnam, so there was the culture of military service my mom's side of the families are immigrants so part of that culture was the the country gave us opportunity now we got to get back to the country right like Absolutely. there's this ethical obligation to to give them a return on investment uh, so to speak and i wanted to be a marine ever since i was a kid and so i joined at a high school there was a lot of conflict with my parents about it my father um, whom I don't talk to very much 
wanted me to go into skilled into skilled trades. My mom was like, "No, you're going in the Marine Corps. You have all, you have three options, and they all involve the Marine Corps. So take your pick." Nice. Nice. Um, I went in the Marine Corps shortly before 9-11. So for me, it was more of a – people ask me, what drove you to join the Marine Corps? And I said, you know, I won. I got a scholarship out of it. So I got the Marine Corps scholarship fund. And I paid for college. And I just genuinely wanted to serve, right? So there was no, I want to go fight al-Qaeda. I want to go right. fight the Moose. Like, I just wanted to be a dude with a rifle. Um, I grew up with a rifle in my hands. So that was like my driving motivation. I just want to be a rifleman. Um, now I joined the Marine Corps, and then less than a year, less than a year of my, it was a week before my one year anniversary, the towers fell. That's so I was freshly minted Lance Corporal. I was just, you know, locked and ready to rock and roll and then we see the towers get hit and Pentagon get hit and Shanksville PA get hit it's like holy shit everything just changed right and that's why we're here though yeah it's like everything just changed yeah in a heartbeat and I mean I'm gonna you don't mind if I'm on potty mouth no no. Um, we don't um, we don't swear because it's a on YouTube, everything will be unfiltered, but on Apple Podcasts, it has, uh, but it flags in here, so I can, it, it will tell me automatically, it blurps it out, you're fine. Okay, so I, I mean, I want to get my point across without being too much of a point now. Oh, it's important though. Swearing is very important. The word swear like a sailor <laughs> comes from somewhere, and I, I'm a big fan of it. I just don't want to be censored, you know? No. Uh, no. Big Brother's going to be like, shut your damn mouth. No, it flags for me, so I can bl- blur it later, only for okay. Apple Podcasts. Everywhere else is totally clear. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, it was it was like holy shit, and the whole world just changed in an instant. Now it's time to get to fucking work. Like I was, I was scared. How old were uh, you at the time? Because uh, I mean, you ni- said 19? about a year. I was nineteen. Nineteen. That's. I joined that's Marine Corps at seventeen. Yeah, I was joined when I was seventeen. Nice, me too. Um, it was a cont- oh, it's great age when you're like I know everything. And I don't know jack <laughs> yes. shit. Yeah, <laughs> I knew I couldn't afford college, so I was like, "Yeah, well, this is what we're gonna yeah. do." I guess. Same here. I knew yep. my parents couldn't afford to send me to college. Exactly. So I was like, "Well, I get to get out of this house as early as possible, and I get money for college." Right? It's incredible. Sign me That's up. what I said. That's what I said. I get a yeah. free cruise around the world. What? Exactly. <laughs> Place to live. I don't have to live with my parents. I don't have to work oh, at yeah. Steak and Shake anymore. That's yes, right. Absolutely. I got the U.S. Marine Corps flex plan at the. DFAC? Hell yeah. <laughs> yep. Nice. Exactly. God, I haven't eaten in a galley in a really long time. Oh I want to try. There's one right next to my work. And because there wasn't one, well, I guess there was one close by, but the hours weren't good. But it, everyone says it's the greatest food ever. And I haven't, I haven't been in a long time, but maybe we'll do a little morale event over there soon. That's a good idea. You should. You yeah. should. You know, government like I said, and institutional use only. It tastes yep. great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I warned you. I'll squirrel and I'll squirrel hard. So. You gotta keep me on track sometimes, but yeah. So, and this no pun intended, but like, bombs drop and the world explodes, and now what? I'm on a ship. I'm on the USS Boxer in the Amphibious Task Force West. January seventeenth, two thousand three, was like a year and a half. 
like first they first everything happens in Afghanistan like October 01 all of 02 that's like they're putting warheads on foreheads all over eastern Afghanistan right like Afghanistan was hot and heavy right and then um we get a frost we get like this frost order where we're like hey everyone's <laughs> the entire one map is being reorganized so everybody's going to new stations. Everyone's yep. going everywhere. Like they're reorganizing all the formations. They're allocating humans. They're putting together, you know, amphibs. Like it was something out of a out of a crazy movie. It was bananas. It was. It. I mean, and I. I mean, I was a kid, but that's exactly what it was. Even still, it's it's obviously not having been involved in things like that. It. It's a weird balance to think of that as real history that now I feel I contribute to by serving mm-hmm. but also to think that like that's that's just something you see on a movie that's something you see on TV like that that could never happen here which I think is what a lot of Americans believed at the time it's was not my life exactly exactly <laughs> and to see it happen you know in our backyard in in our nation was yeah. I think a shock for a lot of people that not a lot of regular American citizens were prepared for and probably not a lot of the military either because mm-hmm. you know we we train and we prepare but not like you don't expect that you prepare yeah. for it but you don't expect it like when we when we go into a fight we expect like an unfair fight right like we're gonna come in we're gonna throw the first punch right we're gonna put you on your ass we're gonna steamroll you take your territory establish America establish right. an operating base right plant our flag like exactly know, Marines have landed right but it was a smack in the mouth like I felt nauseous like I had been kicked in the groin Oof. like it was that I mean it just felt so visceral knowing that we've our, our sovereignty our freedom our way of life our people had been killed our way of life has been attacked like it was just a show of, it was just only cowards hit you from behind, right? I and it's, that's what it felt like. It was like someone just came up behind me and hit me in the ear. Like, because they couldn't step up to me man to man. Right, right. Because they couldn't, Be like, and most no. people don't because America is a pretty strong force for that reason, right? You would, right. you will fail if you don't, um, try to do that little sneak attack right if, if we had a right, chance right. we would absolutely demolish anybody um so th- i think that's where that came from but t- so, so yeah i was go ahead on the on the boxer headed headed to the middle east like it was a whole task force like that's three muse hitched together i mean <laughs> you got three you have three yeah we we had two big decks so we had the Bonham Richard, the USS Boxer, plus we had frigates, cruisers. Um, we had tenders. I knew there was a sub in there somewhere. Of course. Um, <laughs> there was an LHA in there. So we had three big decks plus supporting elements. Right. Right? Like, you don't leave port with three big decks in the fleet not knowing that you're going to open that can of whip ass on somebody and their mama. Like it was, I used to go down to the smoke deck and it was on the port side of the, of the boxer. You could look over the over the rail 
to the aft of the ship and you would just see America's mightiest hammer just That's steaming fantastic. away. Hay is grain underway like I, I can't it's like the only thing if you ever seen that movie with Tom Hanks where they're going from like New York to London it's like the ghost or something like that. He's a he's oh, a naval officer. That's yeah, I don't think I've seen ships, the whole movie. Right? Yeah, I've seen the trailer. Yeah. But it's like when you look back and it shows like this bird's eye view of the Armada steaming. Like that's what it was like. Right. But, yeah. But like first person view. Like, I, can't I can't explain. I mean, it's one thing to go to go underway with a Mew, right? Because that's still like a Mew was still a heavy hitter. Don't get it wrong. Like a Mew will jack your life up. Right. Right? <laughs> but when, like you're saying, guns blazing, like, watch out, motherfuckers, here we come. Like, Yeah, straight up. You know, yeah. Straight up. You have a task force of sailors and marines with their guns, with their tanks, with their artillery shells, with their airplanes, with their right. helos. I mean. Like you said, it's just, a can of whoop-ass just waiting. It, oh, right. It's so, a. So of all that. Two questions. One, how many percentage-wise do you think were Marines versus sailors? And do you think there was a big difference in the roles of those individuals? Um, we had a whole regimental con we had a whole regiment of Marines in the task force, right? That was all basically task force Tarawa. The task force that took Iraq all the way up to Baghdad, right? You had Task Force Tripoli on the East Coast and Task Force Tarawa on the West Coast. Okay. So you had ATF West and ATF East. ATF East was another regimental combat team made up of three different MUs, right? So you had two MUs, but this is the one thing that I, I don't think people really understand is that it's Navy Marine Corps team, right? right. Marine Corps doesn't operate you know, as a standing force with an amphibious capability without our shipmates. Absolutely. Fast. Yes. Like anybody that talks about that needs to get slapped in the mouth. Like, right. We Sailors. can have some fun competition, right? But it's oh yeah, we are not. We are a team, absolutely, in, absolutely, in everything that that we've ever done to get like. There's as much as we use it as a joke, right? Like Marine Corps Department of the Navy, like. But it's they go hand in hand. You need both. Neither will work without the other. In yeah, a lot of these situations, it's just like maybe you could squeeze by, but you mm -hmm. would not be nearly as successful, right? Right. Like America doesn't want a naval infantry. America wants a Marine Corps. The naval okay. infantry, right, right, right. And right. there's a huge difference, right? Like you can't just give a sailor a rifle and tell him to go take a ship. Like why not? It just doesn't work that way, right? I mean, they have specific roles and responsibilities for boarding parties, but when you want to establish a beachhead, when you want to <laughs> seize a foreign port, like. You don't send sailors to do that. You send Marines. Right. Because that's what we specialize in. Right? Amphibious warfare. From sea to shore and shore to sea. Like, that's what we do. Right? The Navy owns the sea power. But we own the ability to gain the beachhead and maintain the port. Right. Right? Straight up. Yeah. Like you you don't project sea power without having two different elements to two, two different separate things. Absolutely. Makes right. sense. That work in concert, hand in hand, with close naval ties. Like, straight up. Like, that's the way it works. So, to answer your question, I think it was like 60-40. Oh, wow. That's I mean, there was a big... But yeah. Yeah. I mean, because had, we had naval aviators. You had 
he, all the Marine Air Wings had their own support staff. All the infantry units had their own support staff, plus the infantry unit, plus the Air Wing, plus the Force Service Support Group that was on there. So he had all three, the ground combat element, air combat element, and the ground service support element, all on the task force. Right. So you had everybody, like when we, when we I came back advance party during my first deployment to Pendleton and it was a ghost town. Everyone. And Pendleton was absolutely a ghost town. Everybody right. was forward. Right. Everybody was forward. Um, so like it was all hands on deck when it came time to the invasion. Absolutely. I, so I want to ask just because we're talking about like the importance of integrating, which I think is absolutely real and how everyone has their own role, right? But mm-hmm. there is something that Marines have that we do not. And I, and I wish we did. But again, do you have to take into account like the value that they do and we don't and, and would it be watered down? I don't know. But like when you, right, you've been out for how long now? 15 years, 16 years now. And, and you're still a Marine. Goddamn right. Exactly, right? <laughs> Everyone that I have ever met that, had ever served in the Marine Corps was still a Marine. And we don't have that same sense of identity for the most part in the Navy. And it's treated a lot like, oh, this is just a job that I do. It's not a part of who I am. It's not um, like we don't have that same deep sense of pride. Like you were talking about the reason that you joined with just a sense of service and and Mm -hmm. pride. And not everyone necessarily needs that to join. There's a lot of reasons that I joined for money, for college, to get away mm-hmm. from where I was. But I earned, like I learned that over time, I got there over time. But even still, I don't think my sense of pride and belonging and, and you know, like being in an organization is nearly as strong as any Marine. And, and I feel like I'm at a disadvantage for that and I don't know how to fix it. Or if it even well, should be. I mean, you can cross deck. You know, go go to Marine Corps. I mean, that's always an option. Well, you know, I could um, I, I can't I, abandon the Navy though. Well, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't be abandoning the Navy. You'd still be on the same book, <laughs> some right. category, right? Right. Uh, different line item. Um, I, I've actually seen that. I've seen Marines uh, that go into the Navy, uh, and it's absolutely cool. Uh, I met I met him. Uh, speaker was Mike Sorelli. He was a Navy SEAL commander that was in Ramadi right toward the tail end of my deployment. So he got there right after I got wounded. And this guy uh, was, an, was an enlisted Marine, became a scout sniper in the Marine Corps, reconnaissance Marine, like total badass, URA Marine Corps, high speed, low drag, gets selected for the Marine Enlisted Commissioning Program, goes to school at A&M, and he realizes, well, he has to give his pound of flesh to the government regardless. But he realized that being a SEAL was what he wanted to do. He wanted to become a SEAL officer. Right. So he shows up to mini buds in between junior and senior year in his Marine Corps service uniform. Right? And all the sailors were with them right and look we got gunny highway just showed up on deck <laughs> oh good to go we just want to have a marine come in here and try to be try to be a seal and then i gave him shit but what was so and this speaks to your to your question is that what made him so much more effective as a leader even during buds 
was the fact that he was a Marine and had that understanding that the, that the organization, if he were to take care of his people first, his needs would be met automatically, right? Like, I'm gonna put. I'm not even gonna talk about me being hungry because I'm gonna make sure all y'all eat. Absolutely. Right. Like all y'all are gonna eat, and then once everyone's full, then I'm gonna sit down and have chow. Right. I I think and that's it, part of what the Navy is getting wrong is that for like you're saying, Marines are Marines in the Marine Corps, right? Like it is the organization that they are focused on primarily. Yeah. But then yeah. we have in the Navy, you are a sailor in the Navy, right? Like. If that, I don't, those are the same things that I just said and they sound totally different. But like for the Sailor's Creed, I am a United States sailor. I will, Mm -hmm. like, there's no, there's no we, there's not. And I've been in 13 years and I haven't gotten from like official Navy um, any kind of training that talks about the importance of putting the team first, the organization first, and that like, I know that it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. but there's no mechanism in place telling us to do it this way. And so when you try to do that, it doesn't always work out in your favor or you you watch other people who focus on themselves get promoted and get rewarded. Mm-hmm. And and it's hard to, to combat that when you're like, well, look at this person flying through the ranks because they're like pushing other people down as they go up. That's right. I think it's leading to like bigger long-term problems that we have with retention and problems with leadership and X, Y, Z. That is the whole point of why we're all here for this podcast. <laughs> but right. it's like building in that sense of, of belonging to the organization we are missing. And I don't know where well, to fix it. Like, I remember being in basic training and reading about our heritage right um and during the crucible i think this is what separates us from the rest of the services and of course i'm speaking with bias and with preference but um the crucible each stage of the crucible was it was a leadership and decision making uh, like activity. evolution, you know. Absolutely. And everybody was given a chance to be the team leader and the squad leader at that time. So at every different evolution, everybody is leading in some way, right? So it's taken that whole centralization of leadership modality and smashed to pieces. And so now everybody in the organization is a leader in their own right. And it begins with the individual, right? I can't lead you if I'm unwilling to follow direction. Right? Reasonably. Right. Within ethical, moral, and legal boundaries. Right. Right? And those are outlined in the code of conduct. Right. Like straight up. Like I'm not gonna follow an immoral, illegal, or unethical order. Right. Like straight up, I will I will refuse to comply and I will run that to the chain of command and I will request mask. Right? Like that will be a detriment to the force, to our security, or the individual health and wellness of our, of our shipmates and Marines. Right. And that's a risk that, you're willing to take for someone to come down on you for it because you have yeah. the bigger picture in mind. Because it's called moral courage, right? Like you have to be able to stand up and say, hey, what's not right is not right. Right? So those 
senior leaders that oftentimes you were speaking of that step on the junior leadership to get to the higher position, they sometimes forget that those internal controls exist to maintain accountability with them as well. Exactly. Right? Because that act speaks that act swings both ways, right? Accountability. That act swings both ways. Right? Absolutely. I'm not willing to hold you accountable if I am unwilling to let you hold me accountable. I I couldn't agree more. Right. So that's the and I think that's what's fundamental about our leadership in the Marine Corps and um, you know, especially as riflemen, this is where accountability is the most important because we have to be able to trust your decision making. And you have to be able to trust my decision making, right? If I'm calling a shot for you and we're on the we're on the line and we're in a firefight and I'm directing fire for you and you're the one on the gun, you have to be able to you have to be damn sure that when I say that your target is at you know, nine o'clock and your <laughs> your wind is calling at ten miles an hour, which is like a minute and a half quick um, windage, like you're gonna put that on your gun and you're gonna engage the enemy because you know for a fact that what I'm saying is to your benefit, not to mine. Right. Granted you're you're protecting us, but the benefit is to you. Right. And so it's like one, understanding that accountability is two ways, and then two, you can't develop trust unless there's mutual accountability, right? Absolutely. And then three, relationships move at the speed of trust. Oh, I like that. I need right? that on a bumper sticker. Hold on. Hold on. I was writing down the other thing you said, and now I got distracted. Mutual mutual accountability? Is that what we said? Yeah, builds trust. Builds trust. <laughs> okay. And then, and then the... Uh, relationship at the speed of trust. God, I like that. Okay, I got that from General Mattis. Nice. I in his book. Um, I want to say I have one of his books in my Amazon cart right now. But I, just, it's funny you say that because like I picked this book up at the um, uniform store the other day just for mm-hmm. fun. Like I got, I had to get a, um, a belt or something, and it's just like quotes and quips for military personnel. And I was like, oh sure, why not? I was like five bucks or something and so I just went through and I was reading them and like highlighting different ones that I thought were interesting or that I thought man I needed to hear this five years ago um, and I'm like this is such a little kind of cheesy thing but I I really like it and I brought it around and and talked to people about it and like hey what do you think about this quote and it brings about some really good discussions so even something like that like you don't necessarily have to read the entire book you'll get something good out of it I'm you, sure you just need some nuggets exactly exactly I love it um awesome okay sorry so all of these things you're saying fantastic love all of them how did you learn them right so this story your story that you shared in the foundry that resonated with me so much i feel like we kind of like skipped over it just talked about your the things that you learned because of it right so tell us what happened in when when we opened the said can of whoop ass (laughs) (laughs) well that was the first deployment that was the invasion okay um that was probably the scariest experience of my life like i can't like i'm just gonna be real right like you can be scared but you can't be afraid right because being scared and being afraid 
to the point where you're paralyzed keeps you from operating effectively in a survival in, in the context of surviving, right? I was scared and I was afraid. And after those first rockets hit, once we were in Kuwait, it was like, I don't have time to be afraid because I don't do. want to, I got to do, right? Like, I don't have time to be afraid. Yeah. I don't have time to stop. Like, I just have to keep moving. And so all of a sudden, you know, tr- my training was just, just real. My behavior was reinforced by good training, right? Um, and I think I'm going to preface this now that I'll reiterate this and throughout the, the, the conversation is that, you know, athletes, people, executives, service members, police officers, firefighters, they never rise to the occasion, right? Anybody that says they rise to the occasion is a fucking liar. Yeah. Right? Because you fall to your level of preparation. Yep. So anybody that says, oh, yeah. You know, I just showed up that day. I'm like, nah, dude, you didn't just show up. Like, you put hundreds of hours of time and work and blood and sweat and tears to be prepared for that moment. Definitely right? not by accident. It, it's not by accident. Success is incremental and it's intentional. It's not accidental, right? You're full of these little one-liners. God, it's good. <laughs> I was gonna. I've been writing them down, and I think I have this recorded. I could just listen to it again later. What am I taking notes for? Oh. But I've like it's taken me 23 years to figure that shit out. Um, like since I was 18. Like I think my adult frame of mind starts when I was 18, and then my grown-up frame of mind starts when I was 18. But my my manhood starts when I was like. On January seventeenth. Okay, so what I didn't tell you is that I had my oldest son was born December twenty first, the month prior to oh. deploying on the boxer. Oh, geez. So now I leave. Right. This is the added layer of like the military that we often don't talk about. Right. Yeah. Is the impact that leaving the family has on the service members. Yeah. Right. Because oftentimes the military service organizations and these family organizations talk about the impact on the families, which I understand is significant to our force readiness. However, we have to be able to understand the impact on the service member because that's the distance from the family is only compounding operational stress while they're underway when they're forward deployed. Absolutely. Right? So there's not just this, oh, I love you, honey. I'll see you in seven months. No. No, you can't just go about and, your merry way while they're the uh, only ones struggling, right? Yeah, like I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, and everything's too cute, right? Right. Yeah. No, it, it's not that way. Yeah. So, I'm learning all these hard life lessons, and I'm a new dad, and I'm a new husband, and my son. Life's so my, easy. It sounds like. Yeah, this is like, <laughs> it, it's amazing. You know, everything is so easy at this point in life, right? There's absolutely no challenge, no struggle. Yeah. Why does no, everyone do this? <laughs> nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm looking at this in retrospect, and I'm like, shit, no wonder, you know, I wasn't the only one that was afraid. I look back at pictures of us on ship, and I can see not only it, the look on the faces of my fellow Marines, they weren't just scared but then they were also afraid, mm-hmm. right? And I, I wasn't able to garner that perspective until being away from the 
being being distance from the experience 20 years right right it's so, easy to get perspective when you're removed this, and yes, not sucked yes. into it right absolutely right and so we come off the box they fly us off the boxer on a 46 no sorry on a 53 a single rotor with the tail rotor 53 um and we fly out of the Gulf. It's like something out of like Heartbreak Ridge, right? Where they're on the deck and they're on the helos and they're right. flying into this foreign country. I'm like, like, am I living in a fucking movie? Like, right. this is bananas, right? And all I have is a sea bag and a rucksack. <laughs> like, oh, Time to go. it just got, it got real, yep. right? And yeah. my rifle in a full combat load. Jeez. We get into Kuwait and fly into the Ali Asalim. Air base, then we all go to Camp Coyote. We're all the Marines and the first Marine Expeditionary Force are staging for the invasion. The whole invading force just staged. I would like to see that. I'm, oh man. Talk about it's, gaining perspective. Like for me, I so I'm I'm an Intel. I've never yeah. done anything that didn't live in air conditioning ever. And I I've, so I'm a, I'm a mom I'm a single mom to two kids now mm-hmm. um, but you know I've had to leave them for a couple months at a time for different like TADs but again to go sit in someone else's office somewhere different and I still got to FaceTime them every night and mm-hmm. you know I I don't have that perspective of my job and what I do every day and how that relates to that and how that feeds to that I understand it conceptually, right? But mm-hmm. I've never been on the other side to to have value and be like, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing every day because yeah. those people are over there doing that and I'm I'm contributing to that. I'm enabling that mission, right? And mm-hmm. and I again, I feel disadvantaged that I don't have that perspective that I think is so important because I can just I can just only imagine, right? Like a movie like you said it, like well but your perspective is <clears throat> your perspective is unique though that's what our that, that's what the conventional nature of war at the time was promoting right like conventional war as we know it is completely dead right it's gone there's no more maneuver warfare land based maneuver warfare yeah. at least not that we'll right. ever engage in at least not that I'll ever see ever again in my life right right um, I think the last major <laughs> maneuver warfare campaign was our Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? Yeah. Last major maneuver warfare campaign in Marine Corps history. Um, but the means of war has changed. The means of war has changed. The way we, the the ways and means of war have changed. War, in and of itself, the nature of war will never will never change. Right. But the ways and means have. And I think that's important perspective to maintain because you're now on the tip of the spear of the ways and means of the way we fight unconventional war. Right. Like straight I, up. I, I agree with that and I understand that. It's it's just I think more people could use like you're just even that visual of like and it, I know it won't ever look that way again, but mm-hmm. To see, like, this is why we fight, right? This is why we train. This is why we're here. This is why yeah. we prepare, you know? Because yeah. as I'm sure it was terrifying, it had to also be a little, like, I don't want to say exciting, but, I like, 
Oh, no, invigorating, right? Exciting? Yeah, okay. absolutely exciting. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Marine Fair. with a rifle. I'm the deadliest thing on a battlefield on a mankind. Nice. Like, yeah. watch this shit, Saddam. <laughs> Fair. Okay. <laughs> Hold my MRE, Saddam. Watch <laughs> this shit. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, that was, I would say, there's this one side of me that was scared and afraid, and this other side of me that was a cocky, arrogant, you know, 21-year-old kid. Right. That was going to go and implement U.S. foreign policy, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's fantastic. I have never heard it put that way. I like that so much. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, that's exactly. We're going to talk about like U.S. Our, our U.S. diplomacy model, right? Dot. Like, diplomatic information, military, and economic, right? Like, I was the M. In the dime model. Yeah. Like, we're about to make you feel that's, our presence. That's what D-Gut <laughs> says. Like, that's the whole point of the military is to go kill people and break their stuff. Basically, Facts. right? Like, it's, that's exactly I'm what gonna we're doing every day. Exactly. I'm going to break yep. your will. Yep. Yeah. Like, I am going to break your will to fight us and hurt our people. Like, yep. that's the M. And then you dime. will never try again. Ever. Right. Ever. Exactly. And if you do, we'll beat you even harder. <laughs> yep. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So that was like my first deployment and that we invaded. That was just the invasion in and of itself. Like when we stepped off, it was, it was something like 10 o'clock at night, 2200 hours, I remember. And I remember the Iraqis had dug these big slit trenches across the berm, right behind the berm. And they'd filled it with oil and they set it on fire. So there's this smoke screen, which is trying to impede your vision and visibility for as far as the wind would blow it. Right. Right? Because they knew it worked during the Gulf War. They're like, hmm, Why not we, oil wells, we set oil on fire, Americans can't see, Americans can't fight. You know? <laughs> so it's like John Kreese from, you know, Karate Kid. <laughs> and like driving past the berm, like it just, the smells, the, the the texture of the air, because the air had texture, the taste of the air, the heat on your skin. Plus, we were already in, in mop, mop suits. Right. So it was like, man, this is like post-apocalyptic. Like, this is about to get Mad real. Max, like driving through there. So, absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was probably... Like each experience was different, right? And once we got to our pause and we started setting up our base of operations, it was like security patrols and firewatch. Like, like it just became mundane. Like war is boring. War is the most boring, exciting thing you'll ever experience, <laughs> right? Like if you ever if you ever go underway and you're sitting on a ship. And being on ship is the most boring, exciting thing you'll ever experience. <laughs> it's lame, but it's so exciting. There ain't shit to do, time. but there's a bunch yeah, of people can, oh, there. There's a lot of fun to be had. There's, yeah. like you said, looking over and seeing the squad, right? Like, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a little bananas. of everything. Yeah, it, it is. It's like a potpourri of boring and awesomeness all, all at once. Nice. Um. <laughs> Sounds like being a parent. <laughs> Like most of yeah. it is boring. Most of it is not fun. But then something happens. You're like, 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like you have those little moments of happiness. Yeah. In the middle of the boredom. Um, and, that, and that's what my, the first tour was. Like, there was just a lot of chaos. It was chaotic. Um, my section leader, my school, my platoon sergeant, was a combat vet, so he was there during Gulf War. So he was always, he was always yelling at us, screaming at us, "Drink your water, you're in war, motherfucker! Drink the water, hydrate," as we say. Hydrate, <laughs> hydrate. You're gonna die, motherfucker! We at war. Drink the water, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> Man's yeah, got I mean, experience, I, right? I think that's what traumatized me. It was him telling me to drink the water. <laughs> Please tell me you keep in touch with this guy. No, he's dead. Oh, shit. Buried in Quantico. Oh. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but, he, but it's like, one, his leadership taught me a lot, right? So just for... Anonymity purposes. I don't have like I don't want to talk about the family or whatnot. Yeah. But just like from a leadership perspective, he taught me how I didn't want to be a leader. Mm, I've had some of those. Right. Yep. So he's still data, still valuable data. Absolutely. Right. Still experience. It just goes in this column. Right. <laughs> it gets its different column of data that we'll right. reference later. Right. <laughs> um. So that deployment ended, and it was traumatic and. It was overwhelming and it was scary and I was afraid, but I wasn't a coward, right? Like, and I want to be emphatic about that. Like, every Marine I've served with, never in every deployment, never showed cowardice in front of the enemy. That's ever. awesome. And that's, and I think that's a testament to leadership because confidence and optimism are perpetual force of multipliers, right? So I had leaders, I had good leaders, I had good squad leaders in Fallujah and Ramadi that were confident and they were always optimistic, right? Like very little did I have pessimism in my, from my leadership, my second and third tour. I mean, you can't afford right? it in that environment. No, no, you can't. Like, I don't want to hear, oh, oh, we're going to get ambushed. Motherfucker, one, don't speak that into existence, right? Manifest don't put that energy out in the yep. universe. Like I don't want to hear that. Yeah. Like, if anything, uh, you know, the big C one thirty in the sky is going to come and drop rain and hellfire on them, and we won't get ambushed. Like that's the kind of energy I want out there. Right. right? Like we have, we own the skies and we own the ground. Right. So we can go and take care take care of business. So is the so. was the pessimism? Is that like the main trait you took away from that from the water guy? I think, I think it would less be pessimism, but more toxic leadership, right? Because it was more about him maintaining power rather than um, us being cohesive as a team and operating like a family, right? Like my first deployment, I don't, I think, I don't talk to, let me think. Yeah, I don't talk to anybody from my first deployment ever. Wow. I don't, ever, I don't talk to any of them. They were all, a lot of us were from different parts of the unit. We weren't organic to our squad, so we didn't really know each other. So when we got there, we got deployed, it was like, you didn't, 
I couldn't say I couldn't trust him. I just didn't know them. Right. And there's a, there's a the more, yeah, yeah. And the more time we spent together, the less we kind of wanted to get to know each other. Yeah. And so it was one of those where it had like poor team chemistry. Yeah. And the chemistry was really, it just it wasn't bad. counterproductive. It just ineffective. Yeah. It just yeah. wasn't. It just wasn't the best vibe. Um, so I came home, July. July of 03, came back to Vance Party. I, the, sh- the task force didn't come back until like September. Um, so two months later, because okay. everyone had to rotate back to, the, back to the ship, and then the ship had to sail back to San Diego. But I flew back. Um, and just luck of the draw, they picked names out of a hat for Vance Party to go back and receive gear and oh, right, right. You know, all that stuff. Nice. And you got a young baby at home to spend some time with, too. So it worked out. But the worst part about that was that when I got home, my son ran away from me. Mm. Didn't know who I was. Yep. See you, Dad. (laughs) I don't even know if you're my dad. Just go away. Yeah. Like, the connection. And and I still feel that today. Like, you know, the residual effect of that still exists. Like, my, you know, my... My oldest son and I, we haven't been, um, it's hard to connect. Yeah. It's because that initial bond wouldn't, wasn't established after he was born. Like I was there for three weeks and I was gone for eight months. Yeah. That first 12 months inside of the, the first 12 months of the side of a child's life are important for the bonding experience, right? Absolutely. Uh, and which is so hard enough that, on fathers as it is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and then to just remove you completely is much worse that's like ripping the potato out of the patch before it even gets a chance to grow a root yeah um so was home long enough you know went back to the rifle range requalified on the rifle did my professional military education you know going through the garrison shit, just stuff that I blah right. I hate garrison right it's boring <laughs> My Marine put me in the field. Um, and I get slated for a second deployment. And this time it's August of 2004. And um, literally almost as soon as I get home, my ex-wife gets pregnant with, with our youngest child, our youngest son. Oh. And he was born... August 26th, 2004. I deployed August 29th, Jesus. 2004. So remember when I said about that bonding? Yeah. New baby? Yeah. Yeah, I, I got three days. That, that doesn't count. I got three days. Yeah. Like, I barely got to get used to the new baby smell. <laughs> I was going to say that. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's the best part. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's so terrible. So... So the op tempo was like crazy. It was deployment after deployment after deployment. Like you got enough time to make a kid and leave. Right. <laughs> Basically. Make Funny how that works here. out, yeah. yeah. Here's your R&R. Right, right? exactly. Um, so you were you, were you looking forward to going back? Were you uh, like... I didn't, I didn't have a choice. Well, yeah, but... It, I mean, granted, but this is only in comparison of the multiple deployments after, but like with that first one not being the greatest to then, you know, and 
then you have your family and yeah garrison is boring right but like yeah were you ready to go and be like okay this is why i'm here or were you like fuck i gotta do this again and like well it was a totally different experience the war had already changed this is 2004 right 2004 okay. so the war had already shifted from um from this maneuver warfare type strategy to now you know the provincial was it the coalition provisional authority disbanded the iraqi army then they kicked out everybody in the Ba'ath party that was part of the government so now you have two and a half million people unemployed right and it literally thrust the country into like secretarian violence and everything that we were trying not to do we'd head right so now we're fighting insurgents we're fighting insurgents who are now recruiting former military members of the Iraqi military right because now they need to feed their family exactly so we disenfranchised a million and a half people that's rough right and so now we're there to keep the peace dude how can we keep the peace if you keep giving everybody a layoff flip like right come on dude yeah like you know gotta have something to work <laughs> no, with <I'm> just... here <laughs> yeah like it's like giving a rifleman a rifle with no bullets like dude you, I can't do my job I can't I can't work <laughs> it's not just for show <laughs> right it's not a club it's not right. a hammer you throw it one time uh, and that's it <laughs> right it's tomahawk yeah. now right right um, and so the strategy shifted so now we're doing security patrols throughout these fishing villages south of Fallujah now we're doing security patrols in Habaniya, south of Fallujah. Now we're doing security patrols and maintaining security for the air base. Like, now we're getting rocketed and mortared on a daily basis. Like, these aren't these aren't just, like, scuds, right? Scuds are no longer operable, right? Like, we've taken them out. But now you have insurgents that are, like, strategically placing all of these rockets, and they're freezing them in cubes of ice and putting them in tubes so that by midday, the ice melts, they launch the rocket, and the insurgents are oh. long gone, right? So now we're fighting people who know how to, like, hit and run. Right. Right? So it's like we're fighting a ghost again, right? And so it's like, you know, these people studied what the Viet Cong did in Vietnam when they fought the Americans. They're going to do the same thing. Right? Right? So... That just became like a cat mouse game, and then the I wouldn't say the siege, I wouldn't the siege, but when they cleared, when we cleared Fallujah, like everybody went south and east, so they went east to Ramadi and like south to Habaniya. So now you have all these people that they're laying low, they're regrouping. We're all dog tired. We've been on patrol, stay on, day on for like 12 days of rotations. It's like every squad was doing a 12-hour rotation, every squad. So we got maybe four to six hours of rest in between patrols, and they're going day and night, right? And we still can't get ahead of them. They're still – there's like – their, their understanding of their terrain and their human terrain was far better than ours, right? Like, 
their it's their country, it's their population, it's their people, it's their language. Right. And so they were able to just disappear into the population. Especially when everyone's out and about. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Fallujah was just, it was hard, it was dirty, it was hot, it was cold, it was miserable. It was the best, worst time <laughs> I experienced up to that time in my life. Fair enough. Okay. So I left in August, come home in March, so another seven-month pump, and um, I'm coming up on my EAS. So I'm like September 2005. And I get home in March. I'm like, hmm. Ride it out for six out. months, I'm, yeah. Uh, I'm a short time in this month. Yeah, I'm out. absolutely. So I got to, you know, I get out. In September, I get out. And I go to college. I start college. I start culinary school. I was going to become a chef. But oh. I drive to Boston Market. I was like, hell yeah. I'm going to smoke weed. I'm going to eat food. I'm going to grow a net and beer. I'm going to be like... Um, Living the dream. No- oh yeah, Kitchen Confidential. Read that book, Kitchen Confidential, <laughs> no. by Anthony Bourdain, and I was like, "This is my new life." <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that is awesome. That's like <laughs> the guy who does the "Don't Give Up the Ship" podcast. He was a CS Master Chief, okay, and he's got yeah, like a yeah. fancy culinary degree and everything. And um, but he he's now he's just retired, and he's got the sick beard. And I'm like. Dude, you've got to have the best life ever now. Like, you can make yourself does. some dope weed brownies if you want to, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know if he does, but he should. Yeah. So, yeah. He probably does. Like, most shipmates, they enjoy, they enjoy the life after service, right? Why Maybe wouldn't you? Should. Yeah. As you should, Exactly. Right? So, yeah. So, I was out. I was in active reserve. And then um, I... I got called back to active duty. Like involuntarily? I've never even heard of that happening. They're just like, yo, mm-hmm. you get over here tomorrow or however long. Right? Yeah, yeah, basically. I got my orders in the mail, like FedEx, the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I would just be like, my dog ate him. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that shit don't fly. Yeah. So were you smoking yeah. weed though? No. Oh. I didn't have a chance. Well, I, I, okay, I did. I did, I was. Did they care? California. Right. So I check in to my unit, and the alpha is squared away. Tell my sergeant major. You know, I check in. He looks at my SRP. Okay, we have any problems with you? No, sir. Oh, sorry, hold on, back up. How much notice did you have from, like, FedEx delivery to show up um, somewhere? 48, 28, 72 hours. Holy crap. Yeah, two or three days. I Jesus, guess. okay. Beard comes off. You know, of course, I'm 20 pounds, 30 pounds lighter, you know. It's fair. And, uh, and I tell the Sergeant Major, I go in there, and I'm like, hey, you know, sir, I've, um, I'm not going to pass your analysis this moment in time. Because good, you got 30 days. That was it. All right, cool. Don't, don't, don't fuck up. I know you were IRR. Just get out of my, get out of my office, and I'll see you whenever. Um, but like, that's when I was, because I went to a new unit. I became a civil affairs marine at that time. Okay. So so now I'm you know, I'm I'm losing I'm using my language skills that I had learned. I'm using my infantry skills, I'm using Can we pause for a second? Skills. Where did you learn yeah. language skills? During Fallujah. Oh, okay. 
I don't know uh, if you had. So I'm a linguist. That's my job. Oh, you're a linguist. Yeah, well, I'm a Spanish linguist. So like, you know, real excited. Spanish linguist. Yeah. Um, But I learned it at DLI. Yeah. Well, it's not up there. I don't know where it is. But yeah, I got a degree from DLI. Castilian Spanish? Yes. That's what they teach you at DLI. Well, we had a lot of really good teachers from other places that would teach us like all the bad words and stuff like that. Um, But it's very much just like formal, regular language. And then from there, after you finish school, then you go on to more school where you learn like, you know, the 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 dialects and the slang and like all that kind of stuff. And And how to speak Puerto Rican Spanish. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know any Spanish at all until they taught me. And so it was it was rough because it is like from day one is no English. And you're just like, what are you saying? But it was <laughs> I know I've seen um, some. I want to say at the time we had a handful of like army officers that would go for like really quick trainings for to get to like the most basic level before they would go and deploy somewhere they didn't get the full language they didn't get the full course they would just do like a a, like a crash course basically so that they Mm -hmm. could do the bare minimum until or unless like they didn't have a translator around or something and i don't know maybe you got something from them so it was it, it was interesting um in the early 80s late 70s when Saddam took power they had they were they were on this just killing spree of dissidents right they would just go massacre dissidents so if you weren't if you weren't loyal to the Ba'ath party they would kill you and your family right and summarily execute you like on the street corner with a with a pistol (laughs) like yep (laughs) Like they didn't give two shits. Like, oh, you don't support the Ba'ath Party and Saddam's regime? Bang. Now you do. Sounds a lot um, like the nothing. cartels in Mexico when I came in. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And uh, so our interpreter was a political asylee to the UK in like the early 80s. He left, he left Baghdad. His family was murdered by the Ba'ath Party. And he was, like, looking for a reason to come back for revenge. Yeah. And, like, he had a fatwa. He had a blood warrant for Saddam's people, right? As, I mean, kind of understandably yeah. so. But, um, so when he got assigned to us, I found out that he had become a Cambridge, like, scholar in Middle Eastern studies. Like, he was a professor at Cambridge. Holy shit. Nice. Yeah, the guy was like super, super intelligent. Like, That's awesome. And he spoke really good. He spoke the Queen's English. Mm. Yeah. Um, but just goes but to show was, you can be a smart motherfucker and a bad motherfucker at the same that's right. time. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Do you want the scroll or the sword? Nice. Yep. Pick yeah. your poison. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, so I asked him, long story short, I asked him, hey, teach me Arabic. So he was okay. Tomorrow, at seven thirty in the morning, before breakfast, come, and I'll teach you the the, the alphabet. So he taught me the first day, taught me the alphabet. The next day, for like every day since um, the end of the deployment, well, if we were we weren't working, or whatever, I was doing my alphabet. Right. I was writing my alphabet. Yeah. So you learning. You can't learn to build words to understand them. Exactly. The alphabet. Right. And so I learned the alphabet. Then he started teaching me vocabulary. Then he started teaching me sentence structure, and then he started teaching me syntax. And like, that's awesome. Know, cool. Oh yeah, it was like the guy was was like a 
immersion course right all at one time and just for you too like yeah like nobody else cared yeah they were like okay williams whatever dude <laughs> but we'd be out on patrol and i'd be able to communicate with the locals in their dialect nice that's awesome and so you know they became less like it became less of a us versus them and a little bit more yeah, like it, yeah. it builds and credibility on your side it builds trust and that's right and you're that's not right. just like the big bad guy with the gun like you're a guy who that's cares right. about them and that's why you have the gun that's right, right. and my my mom's a, a mexican immigrant so i learned Sp- spanish with my first language nice. so i already had the pathways built the language pathways built in my my brain right so it was easier for me to associate words and context and delivery and I, conversational. I've heard that's really helpful. I've never tried to learn another language just because I I don't think I'd be good at it. <laughs> but I and also it scares me because if especially right now, like they they were doing recruiting and stuff, trying to get all of us to like convert to like Chinese and Russian and, and like the hotter languages I'm like that would be cool. But um, I don't ever want to be called to go do some of that stuff somewhere else. <laughs> and if I know a really important language, I will have to do that. I would rather keep my less like needed language for now. And because um, my like I, I like I said, I'm a CTI. I'm a linguist. Right. I do that because I have to because it pays the bills. Mm-hmm. Like the reason I go to work every day is for the sailors. It's for like taking care of our people and and making sure that they have everything that they need to do their jobs right i'll do my Mm -hmm. job absolutely but it is not at all like why i go to work every day and like i have zero desire to do it outside like after retirement for you the people are the mission exactly exactly and and so i just do that so i don't get in trouble (laughs) but yeah i've heard that like once you have a language it's not just making that other thing fit to english it's it gives you the context to be like okay this is English, right. this is that thing, this is that thing, and you can make it, it makes sense more, I guess. You can define an association and it helps you learn better. Right. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I learned and I took the DOPT and I scored really high. Nice. I was like, oh shit, thanks, fella. So much for culinary school, fella. Because <laughs> now you have the official skill Right, now I like, have a skill, so now it's like mission critical. Right, yeah, okay. So I go back, uh, I go back as a civil affairs marine, put me through civil affairs training, um, and we build a team. Like I'm, I get attached to, I get sent to detachment, and I don't everything changed. Like my Marine Corps experience changed when I got to that that organization because it was a very family, very familial feeling. Already like when you walked in, or, oh, or oh, okay, I mean, I think there was like a pecking order, right? Like, when every, anytime you arrive to a new house, you have to learn, you know, whose role is what, right? Um, but I just like I just fit right in, like, I became part of the training staff, I helped train train our team to get ready for deployment because I'd already had two deployments under my belt, so like, I just became. I wanted to be a leader where I could lead, not where, like, where my where my skills, knowledge, and abilities gave me the best competency level right. to be. And that's where they put me. That's awesome. And like, I had the experience. I had the time in service. I had the time in deploy. I had the time in the shit. I understood my weapon systems. I understood my 
like I was very proficient and professional in my role, right? And so that just, I think that gained confidence of my senior leaders and that they gave me a position, you know, as the dude. Like I was the dude that carried the rifle in front of the boss. Right. Like I walked point. Like when the boss went anywhere, he didn't go before I went. Like, hey, sir, I got to make sure you're safe. Like I got to be an instrumental part of the team that, you know, if we put it in terms of like a log drill, like I was holding my weight. Right. Right. And um, I think in training, they really permitted me to to lead in training because they knew that I'd already been in an environment that they were going to. I'd been I'd already been to Anbar once before. So this was my second time to Anbar. So how did they know that? Just by like talking oh, to yeah, you my, or, or from your record? My service or, record. Okay. Yeah, my service record, my obviously but, my my marksmanship skills, my 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 infantry skills, like But you know, the yeah. totality of things that existed without you having to necessarily prove it again to them yeah okay yeah I, that's awesome there was an, an immediate appearance that i was competent right that's awesome. And confident and, and skilled um and i adapted quickly to the new role i didn't know what civil affairs was all i knew is they were going to give me a machine gun put me on a truck and let me go do my job Bet. okay that's what i did before yeah like let's get after it but then there was more context to it right there was more understanding that now you're not just going to be providing security, you're going to be on the ground in a committee room, in a government building, you know, with our civil affairs officers conducting business on behalf of the U.S. government. Like, you're there to make sure that they can do business by keeping them secure. Right. Because you're trusted to be there. And not just because you know how to use a gun, because you know how this entire system works. And and, That's right. right. That's right. That's right. And so I was like, that was probably the biggest investment of leadership capital that I had been given. Like I was able to like be a leader. And I mean, like with with regard, with disregard to rank, right? Like they don't put you on the machine gun, on the number one vehicle with the commander in the vehicle and the detachment chief in the vehicle unless you know what the fuck you're doing. Absolutely. Right? I'm the tip of the spear. We're walking into the belly of the beast. We're rolling in. <laughs> a squad deep. Rolling into this motherfucker knowing that the first person's going to be taking fire. This fucking Jeremy Williams. Lance Corporal Jeremy Williams is going to be on like the first person to make contact. That's amazing. Like straight up. Like in that... That was like a solemn responsibility for me because it was like, I have to be, I have the positional leadership, right? I have the situational leadership. I have at that moment in time, if she gets, which did, she gets real. I have the command and control. So now it's no longer about the rank on the collar, but the experience, knowledge, skills, capabilities, and understanding the situation and terrain and human terrain and political context everything comes into all these different environmentals come into play when you're beginning to make those engagements right 
but you felt confident in that because of your experience, but they're trusting you, right? Yeah. Because they said like, you okay, have to you see. go do this now. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so th- there's no reason for you to doubt it because these people said, right? And, and they they know what they're doing too. Just like you know what what your skill set is. They know how to pick people to put them there and they wouldn't do it if they weren't confident in you. And I think it even goes more to that. It's the, it's the secession of power by senior leaders in an attempt to empower junior leaders to make sure that they can make decisions when decisions need to be made. Absolutely. Right? We'll come back right? to like, that. Yeah. J- just because I'm a lieutenant colonel doesn't mean that I know what's going on on top of the gun with your perspective looking outside of the vehicle where our view is is encumbered because of the steel plating. Right. right? Like you have a blind spot, but I don't have a blind spot. Right. Right? So taking that, you know, that other service member, that Marine has perspective. And I think what levels the playing field, and you ask, you know, what makes Marines still Marines? is because when we're in combat, right, it's not a lieutenant colonel, a master gunnery sergeant, a corporal, a lance corporal, and an HM2. It's four Marines and a Navy corpsman. Right. Right? And that's, four that's Marines so and important. Navy corpsman. Because, and this is like, you can't always focus on that. It matters a lot, right? There's a reason that we have a rank structure. There's a reason that we have a chain of command and a hierarchical mm-hmm. system. And sometimes it's very important and it's very valuable. But like you said, like when it hits the fan, this is a team and the, the job is to, to get out alive, right? Or, mm-hmm. or get out with other people not alive. And that doesn't matter if you are like, oh, excuse me, sir, I'm so sorry, but can I just go shoot this bad guy right here, right? Like that's, yeah, no. that's, not, gonna, that's not gonna fly. And, and, and if you look at it, like in every role, every role that, that Americans play, right? Across our joint force, and I'm speaking this in a broad generalization, but it speaks across all the junior enlisted ranks because the majority of the work is done by the junior enlisted. So the the rifleman on the line, Lance Corporal Corporal, right? The sailor at the helm on the bridge, that's like, that's a second class. That's a first class, I mean a third class. Like you got a 21 year old first, third, second class driving a multi-billion dollar Billion, warship. billion. With a B, yep. right? Not the skipper. Right. The skipper's probably in his cabin in his stateroom doing his report right. to higher command, right? right? To, to some admiral, right? But that second class is driving that ship on a bearing set by the captain. Exactly. Right? He's the petty officer of the watch. Like, that's the man in charge. It's not It's not, It's not. not the CO. The CO's in charge, but who's, who's running the ship? Right. Petty officer of the watch. Right. Right? Straight up. You know, the airman that's making sure, that's part of the ground crew, is making sure his pilot's aircraft is ready for takeoff like the pilot does his pre-flight check but it's that junior enlisted service member that's making sure that motherfucker is running right because that's that's that person's expertise is right to get it ready and make sure it's ready maintain it and and all of that right like the pilot is flying it they are not like 
like yeah, yes, put it know in perspective. It all, it's a but, but yeah, to, to put it in perspective, it's a twenty-something-year-old American who's within their first enlistment that is ensuring that the ship is moving, the plane is flying, the rifle is ready, the tank is moving, the the satellite is is traversing, like information's being shared, like. It's not a fifty-year-old colonel or general, but right, like straight up. Like I mean, it's not even the chief, not even the gunnery sergeant. It's not even the sergeant first class or the chief master sergeant. Nope. Right. It's that junior enlisted that's taking the burden and and holds the weight of our national security apparatus on their shoulders every day. That's out there making the decision that needs to be made, and they don't even know they're doing it. Because they've been so locked in and they've been so zeroed in so that for them it becomes just a second nature behavior. Right. Like we talked about that perspective of when you're sucked into it versus when you're removed. That's right. Right. That's right. And so it's like leadership at this point, and I'm going to jump back to my time going and preparing for Ramadi and going to Ramadi, is everybody in in the team Add significant value to benefit the team, right? So, we built our team inside using the premise that the strength of the individual is implemented inside of a system for the betterment of the team, right? So, in in sports perspective, we've all I don't know if you've heard of Herb Brooks. He was the coach of the nineteen eighty Olympic hockey team that beat the Soviets in Lake Placid in nineteen eighty. And he used their system against them by understanding the difference between a championship team and an all star team. All star teams fail because the team relies solely on the talent of the individual to be successful. Championship teams win because they harness the talent of the individual inside of a system that's designed for the betterment of the team, right? Yeah. So now everybody has a significant role to play in the team. Everybody has a sector of fire. Everybody has a, has a role in responsibility. Everybody is dependent. The success of the entire operation is dependent on everybody's ability to operate independently within their domain of ownership. I like it. Right? And it's right? so true. Yeah, yeah. And a good leader will see that the system in and of itself is what he's supposed to manage, not the individual. Yes, yes. The team the team will police the individual so as long as you give the team the resources, the knowledge, and the capabilities to be effective as a whole. Right. Knowledge and capabilities right? to include like your personal capability to to say something to like you're talking about accountability earlier to hold other people pure accountability personal accountability Mm -hmm. accountability in every direction right like Mm -hmm. you have to be equipped to do that by being empowered by your leadership and instead of being like you said and just put into this like here you are just go drive the ship and that's all you're going to do and it has nothing to do with like anything else yeah and there's a an iceberg in front, you know, coming up on the bow at, at, at freaking zero degrees on your bearing. Um, do you need the skipper's permission to divert that bearing of the ship in order to avoid collision? No, you don't. That's called common fucking sense. Well, I'm not going to crash the ship 
into an iceberg because my last order was maintain bearing 365. And I agree with you. My argument is <laughs> we give these young sailors, and I'll use sailors as an example, right? Like we give them the power and the and the access to control bajillion dollar ships. But mm-hmm. they can't have a toaster in their barracks. Right? They can't have a coffee machine. They can't be trusted to keep their room clean. You know what I mean? Like the the dichotomy of like you're trusted with this when you're part of a team that can be supervised or only when I'm around, right? Like I'll trust you yeah. with that. Yeah. But when you're alone, yeah. you can't be trusted to like brush your teeth alone. And I mean some of them some think- of them can't be trusted to do those things. But that goes to the cultural difference between like and, and you see some leaders in the Marine Corps act this way and some in the Navy act this way but by and large like good leaders they develop a culture of accountability and then they provide the individual the ability to make mistakes right because they know it's not a zero defect equation absolutely and I do this with my team at work at the VFW it's I'm not going to get in your way until you show me there's a barrier and you need my help Right, like that's when I'll come in and help. But I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna organically create a barrier just because I want to be in charge. Right? Yes. Yes. So when I talk about domain ownership with my team, it's like show me what you own and then we'll work together to incorporate that into the grander into the grand strategy of the program so that you maintain doing domain ownership. Right. I don't ever want to step in your domain and tell you how to do your job better than you are showing me than you do your job, right? Right. That's so, that's how I try to do it as a leader, and that's also what I look for and appreciate in my leaders is when I have the power, right? They've empowered me to make a decision or do something, mm-hmm. but I also have the safety net that in the event that I have gone too far or I've done something wrong, it's teaching not by punishment by but just by teaching and and explaining when you safely can that like hey this is probably a bad idea this was why it could potentially be yeah. a bad idea in the long run maybe don't do that again right i understand your train of thought and i try to do that with sailors it's like hey i know you thought that this was a good idea and i agree with you in this sense but if we look at our perspective and, and include some of these other things that maybe you didn't realize this is why i wouldn't necessarily work or why it could have been a bad call totally fine right like lesson learned and we'll move on but when we come at people with a hammer every day of every every time you're learning something that you're failing and we're not embracing opportunities to learn instead of just hammering failure it's Mm -hmm. it's really hard to progress individually and have any kind of faith or like confidence in yourself when you're just like waiting for that hammer to come around every day it's hard. I mean, and, and I think that's where that's where the greater culture can shift from a zero defect mentality to a culture of learning, right? Because there was this new Marine Corps doctrinal publication that came out. Uh, it was last year or the year before last. It was learning called learning, and it's how and I can send it to you, but it really discusses that. You know, leaders really are in a continuous cycle of learning, right? 
So leaders become learners, like consistently learning. Right. And that consistency in learning provides you the perspective and the knowledge and the um, confidence to make better decisions, right? Because if you, we look at it in two ways. You can win or you can learn, right? If you're on a winning streak, you're not learning anything. Right. Right? But if there's a break in your winning and you're learning along the way or you're in continuous learning and improvement mode, like your performance is going to get better over the course of that learning streak, right? And I don't think people, and this is why I see junior service members who leave after a first enlistment oftentimes become more successful than senior leaders who retire after a career. I completely agree with that, actually. And it's because there's this culture of, hey, I'm going to make this next iteration better than the iteration before, and I'm going to continuously keep improving on this process until I reach the outcome that I'm designing to reach. Right. Right? I see these senior leaders get out of the Marine Corps, and I'll use like master sergeants and sergeants major and first sergeants, for example, where they're so accustomed to being handheld through this process where people are afraid to lead up rather than to um, listen, right? They're like, oh, the first sergeant knows what's best. Not Rank always. doesn't equal intellect, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. because you're a first sergeant doesn't mean you're a fucking PhD in military science. Like, bro, it doesn't work that way. Yep. Right, like I had first sergeant means for like, work for me at one point, and I don't even like to use the words work for me. Like I usually say work with me, um, but mm-hmm. th- he was a subordinate sailor of mine who was at least eight years younger than me at the t- or older than me at the time, and was had a master's in like something really impressive. I was like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "I wanted to serve my country." I was like, "That's so mm-hmm. amazing," and he was not treated well all the time uh sometimes yeah. right like once you talk to him and realize like oh my god you're a like grown up and, and capable human being and look at this wow but too often and and i know i've done it before too like we tend to go in and think like oh okay you're eve three and you must be a child who knows nothing and i'm gonna talk to you mm-hmm. like a child and treat you like a child instead of just giving them like five minutes to prove that they could be a competent adult and bring yeah. value to your team regardless of their pay grade and and like yeah. i that's that's a big personal complaint of mine and, and a lot of it has to do with power right like i don't want to give you the power to know more than me Why not? i don't want to give you the power to be to be more informed than me right because a lot of a lot of the hierarchy is that um i'm the keeper of knowledge of information and of influence right and um, I control the access, right? But that doesn't mean that you hoarding the knowledge, information, influence, and access does anything to improve the culture of your team. Agreed. Right? So it's like you have to cede some of that power and resources in order to better the team, right? And that's true at every level. And I I see these like sergeants and corporals guys in the Marine Corps them go and become doctors, lawyers, successful entrepreneurs, you know, corporate executives. 
because they learned as good NCOs that the taking care of their team takes care of them. Right. Not the team taking care of them, taking care of their team right. takes care of them. Right. Right. When you see these senior enlisted, that, that and I'm just going to be straight up about it. I love it. Right. And they get catered to in that, oh, when Gunny said jump, it was how high. But Gunny doesn't know why the Gunny's asking for us to jump high. Yeah. He was just told to make sure his Marines move. Okay. Like, there were some people that just by virtue they have the rank doesn't mean they have the tactical, strategic, or operational experience to make the decisions or to select the team or the people that can make those decisions without any kind of external input. Right? Like, you have to take into consideration other factors when making those decisions to build a team. I And that's what's so important. I agree. About, it's just so important. Like, I think the biggest problem the the day, in the Navy that we see is that we have the concept of if you ask for help, then you're wrong or you're, you failed or you're not good enough. Uh, even at like very high levels, the concept mm-hmm. of the zero defect yeah. Big Navy, when you look at like instructions and policies and initiatives that are written and created by our senior, senior leadership, all of these things. Op nabs, op nabs and right. things yeah. like that. And, or even just like memorandums. Like there was a memo that came out last month about quality of service. And like these things are coming. It's not an instruction, but it's a, it's from, it was from SecNav and CNO to, to mm-hmm. the people, right? Um, and yes all these things are available on the internet and nerds like me will go and find them and i you know keep up on stuff but not every sailor does that and not every leader is empowering their sailors with that information because we have process or programs in place to identify areas of improvement in big navy issues or in leadership issues and and big navy is saying like engage fix if you can't fix it elevate it and we will help you that's right but everyone's too scared to say like oh hey i need help Uh, i can't accomplish this thing because of whatever um like lack of resources or lack of training or something yeah because historically everyone else is getting it done anyway whether they're doing it well or doing it right doesn't matter like if i'm the only one reporting to my boss that i couldn't accomplish something and I couldn't accomplish it because I couldn't accomplish it to its intended result, I'm not gonna do it. But everyone else is just checking the box, right? So now I look Mm -hmm. like a failure. And at the very high level, that's not how they see it. But sometimes in here, they do. And so, you know, if you're at a like mid-grade leader level, you don't wanna go and say like, hey, I couldn't accomplish this thing I was supposed to do, or I did it wrong because everyone else is doing it right, so clearly it's my failure. And then when it goes up and up and up into big programs and policies and requesting change, everyone is too scared to to engage because it, it feels like we're failing when we say like, oh, this isn't working right. Like, doesn't mean that we have failed. It means the process is not working. <laughs> that's okay. That's right. And But that's that's not uh, and, a culture that we and have. I think a- yeah, and I think a lot of that has to go to do with the one-way accountability, right? In the culture where top-down accountability, not bottom-up accountability, right. right? So it's hard for, at least in some, in some departments, some ships, some stations, where the junior enlisted is doesn't have a voice, right? And 
that's not the way I mean, that's not the way it was when when I was in the Marine Corps it's like and, and I think it's still the same way where if you have a concern you request mass all the way to the Secretary of the Navy you can request mass right like that that, that policy had not changed I, I have requested can, mass but not everyone knows that Right. And so but that's on like, me to like teach them. And, yeah. and actually, I think my last episode was what to do when you don't know what to do. And it's like, ask this person for help. If that doesn't work, do this. And yeah. Simeo and IG and request mass. Right. Like I went over mm-hmm. all of it. It's like it's like request mass is a leadership tool just as captain's mass is a leadership tool. Right. It can go one of two ways. Either I can go to the skipper's open door or the skipper's can open the door, put me on the carpet. Right. Like how you get there is up to you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't want to go stand on the carpet before the skipper and say that, hey, I fucked up because I didn't follow the op nav or I didn't follow my section leader's um, leadership, right. right? But what if I could have prevented that interaction by going and requesting mass and saying, hey, these things are wrong and I think there's a larger problem here that can impact more junior sailors like me or more junior Marines like me, right? Like the the... And the, the Navy's been notorious about that ever since I was in the Marine Corps. Like, you know, you don't, when I was on mess duty on the boxer, you don't question the fucking senior chief. Of course not. At least sailors didn't. They hated Marines. You know why? Hey, senior chief, can you ask, can you show me why I'm doing this this way? And they will huff and puff. The khakis will huff and puff. But guess what? They're going to sit there and they're going to break it down for you because they don't want to get the rats to the skin. Right. Right? So whether they like to do it or not, like you can either force good leadership or you can be good leadership. I agree. I just think it's on all of us, like at every level, to encourage a questioning attitude. And a lot of people don't like the questions because it feels like you're undermining their authority or doubting their yeah. uh, like competency. But it's like, mm-hmm. it's not that I doubt your decision-making. I just want to know, like, for me, why do we do it that way? Is it because that's how we've always done it? Because that's a bad idea. Or is it because, you know, this is the long-term contribution? And then I can say, okay, now it makes sense to me and I've got my buy-in or whatever. Or I can say, hey, based on my experience or this other thing, here's another idea that we could do to get there to your end result Mm -hmm. that maybe would be faster, Mm -hmm. more efficient, cheaper, right? Like if you spend a small amount of time in answering those questions or being a little more transparent, the return on investment is huge when you're building trust and credibility with your subordinates by answering their questions or giving them more when later you don't have the opportunity right because of time constraints or there's an emergency or whatever and you say Mm -hmm. hey i need this xyz they're just going to do it because they know that you have their back and you would explain it if you could or maybe you're going to come back and explain it later it builds trust in a way that is so powerful and it promotes promotes domain ownership right like everyone talks about this new multi-dimensional war and how the nature of wars, the, the means and ways of war changing, everything is so abstract and unconventional. Well, if we're going to fight an unconventional war, we have to we have to lead in an unconventional way, right? So, which means that in rather than saying you come to me for knowledge, let me do a knowledge transfer, right? Let me give you more knowledge, right? Right. Let me give you the pathways to gain more access to information 
so you can independently make those decisions that don't impede the other way otherwise would impede your progress to domain ownership right like with my team at vfw she's a shipmate uh she was an intel she flew on the pep3s like solid solid human being like great leader and my goal with her is to provide her the resources the capabilities the access the information and the influence to be able to own her domain in such a fashion that she builds more leaders along the way yes yes leaders build leaders right right like i don't want i don't want in any way to get in her way because she's building and owning her domain so that she is the subject matter expert I right love but that. she does that by sharing knowledge right and giving information not by hoarding it right because knowledge is useless unless it's shared agreed right so experience is knowledge reading you know just education is knowledge relationships are knowledge right uh, understanding the, the greater context of your strategy and your environment is knowledge right so giving knowledge and giving information is giving you access to better leadership absolutely and we see some senior leaders now that are afraid to say that i don't know what i don't know please teach me right and that and that presents this culture that all leaders must be know all knowing all merciful all graceful like dude you're not you're not god right like and we know step that. off the podium so right like yeah you look worse when you don't admit it you think you're gonna yeah. look bad to say like oh i don't know what i'm doing right you look worse when we know that you don't know what you're doing. Just admit it. Yeah. It's okay. And we will help you or the, like in any direction, right? Everyone wants yeah. to be a better team. They want to be a better organization. No one wants to waste anybody's time. Of course not. So let me help you and please help me when I need it. I, I tell that and to my sailors. Like you just come and like bop me right on the forehead if I do something stupid or say it dumb because that's not what I'm here for. That's right. That's right. I think like reinforcement, right? Like positive reinforcement is, I, I learned this after raising two kids and going to war three times, owning a business, like like positive reinforcement for me took a while to kick to, to, to stick. But then I realized how effective it was. Um, you know, I, I was in Ramadi and we were, uh, zeroing, zeroing guns and having a machine gun shoot. We have a live fire exercise. And so I get my, my squad automatic weapon in the line. I get her set up. I get the belt. You know, I get her belt fed. I get her charged. They're ready to rock and roll. And the colonel's like, I want to do talking guns. It's, it's, it's a, it is a, an exchange of fire between two guns that when one gun goes silent, the other one opens up. So you literally hear a consistent stream of fire, but each guns are alternating their their rate of fire, right? Um, well, in between your rates of fire, when your barrel gets hot, you have to change the barrel with the old barrel cool with that your replacement, but your spare barrel um, takes some of the action. Well, you're supposed to have the spare barrel on you at all times, right? It, it's just, it's like having an ink stick in your in your uniform, mm -hmm. like it's, it's a mandatory piece of equipment, right. right? 
It's on your body at all times. Well, I'm not a rookie at the game, but I had a brain fart that day. I grabbed my machine gun, grabbed my ammo can. I did not grab my spare barrel. It happens. And so I'm on the line. I'm on the line. The colonel's like, hey, barrel change. Williams, where's your barrel? It's in the armory. Why the fuck is your spare barrel in the armory? Why the fuck are you on my gun? Get off my motherfucking gun. Go get me a fucking machine gunner who knows what the fuck he's doing because this knucklehead doesn't want to carry a spare barrel. We'll take care of that when we get back to the hooch. Mm. Just stand by in the vehicle. Have a good day. Mm. Like, straight up. Like, that's... they. they one, they corrected the behavior. Right. Immediately. Right? Like, you're not... Your equipment isn't complete. You're, you don't get to play. You don't get to play. Mm-hmm. Like your process is incomplete. Get off the line. Later that afternoon, they pull me into the command operations center, and they're like, "Williams, where's the spare barrel?" I'm like it's next to my machine gun in the armory, right? And I go, "Like, good. Go get your spare barrel." They said that spare barrel is going with you everywhere. We, everywhere you go, from now until we tell you we're tired of seeing the spare barrel <laughs> on your back. Like, I don't give a shit if you're going to the head, you're taking a shower, you're going to chow, you're going to math, you're going to PX, you're going to go to the freaking uh, gym. That spare barrel is going to be on your back. Like, I don't want to see your face without that spare barrel hanging off your body. That's awesome. But what it did was reinforced good behavior. And there were, I mean, yeah, there was some discomfort. They knew that, yeah discomfort they knew that I made a mistake but it wasn't something that couldn't be corrected immediately and they couldn't make sure that it wasn't implemented immediately right, right. and they did it with um, they did it with love they, they let it they let me through love even though it was tough love it was still love right and after I got the ass chewing you know and it really wasn't an ass king it was more of a you know better right we're extremely I'm not disappointed. Mad, I'm just disappointed, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. God, that's the worst. Oh, yep. And 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 it didn't come from my didn't come from my section leader. It came from my detachment commander. Because he was like a dad, to me. right? So it was like a father talking to his son. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, man, I let the oh yep. man, I just oh. But what? It did on the other side of the, the equation was it made you want to do better the next time. Right. Never let them down. It made again. you want to improve. Yes, it made you want to improve. It made you want to be better. Right. Right. So the process of leadership that I went through was not so much. And I look back at it now because that was like a really defining moment in my life. Was that. They led me through love. They were compassionate. They were fair. They were firm. And there was an outcome to be achieved. It wasn't just punishing me because I did wrong. It was correcting a behavior so the behavior wouldn't happen again. But they rewarded the good behavior with support. Right. Right? And I fucking love those dudes. Yeah. I fucking love those dudes. It's like, I tell people this all the time, and it sounds silly, and I think a lot of people don't like it because I'm a woman, um, but I think leadership is a lot like parenting in that I, I I like the phrase taking care of sailors. Doesn't mean I want to give them everything they want, 
I want to take care of them. I want to teach them things. I want to make sure that they're prepared to be like good mm-hmm. contributing adults in society, just like I do with my children. And I love them, like all of my sailors. I love the Navy, which is why I'm okay to say that like, hey, we need to fix this, right? You're not gonna go out of, like with my kids, you're not gonna go out of my house doing something like that, absolutely not. It's tough love is love. And it's okay to hold people accountable to teach them these lessons. And, but there is a balance of, of based on intent, I think, of what mm-hmm, your mm-hmm. desired outcome. Is it to scare them? Is it to beat yeah. them into submission? Or is it to make sure that they don't do those types of things again, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and there's there's a fine line between like correcting behavior and just being abusive, right? Yeah. Like, and I think we have to discuss that because I grew up in an abusive household. My mom's an abusive alcoholic. Like, I love her. Love my heart. Um, my father's he was absent. He was an absentee dad. Like he was there, but he was absent. Um, and I had a stepfather that was in a Marine Corps that was, by virtue of his job, never present. Right. right? So I had I had these role models that taught me some, but didn't teach me a lot. Right. A lot of what I learned from being a father was one through trial and error, two um, failures, three um, reflecting on what I went through as a kid. I didn't want to over and over again and now that I'm in a journey where my kids are 18 and 20 I can be that father that I can reflect on rather than being that father that I have to like be a hard ass about and I think there's a similar pathway in leadership and Lieutenant Colonel Bramwell really hammered this home well yeah I was very emphatic about it is that he said, you know, you love your Marines the same way you love your children and you protect them and you do what's in their best interest. What's in their best that's interest? Coming from a, yeah. Yes. May not be something that's they coming like. From a Marine. Yeah. It's it's never it it's never what they like, it's what they need, right? Yes. And um and I think that was one of the ways that I had started to to lead in the business world and in the, in the veterans community because the way we lead in like this, like when you get out of the Navy and when you transition to a veteran status, you're going to go home to your community, right? And you're not going to come home to Navy. You're not going to come home to a ship. You're going to come home to your community, right? And the community knows that you're now a Navy veteran, right? But what they don't know is how it molded you. It's our responsibility to share those knowledge, skills, abilities, and values with our community, not only to improve it, but to show the value of our service to the rest of our community, to embolden them and to empower them to continue or to approach their life of service as well, whether it's in public service, whether it's as a teacher, as a doctor, as a nurse, as a service member, as a as a EMT, as a paramedic, whatever. But we we maintain this culture of accountability, of love, respect, compassion, honor, integrity, you know, uh, initiative. And we can bring those things, but we have to make sure that we're reflecting on it from the presence of where was I when my leadership held somebody else accountable and their leadership held me accountable. Right. Right, because it begins in the military, 
but it, it's a lifelong skill that you take with you forever. Yeah. So, so with that and for time, uh, I could do this all day long. I could, but I do oh, yeah. have to pick up my children soon. So yeah. So like you said, with the veteran community, what do you, what are you doing now? Right. You said it's been 15, 16 years since you've 15, 16, yeah, okay. 16 years. Um, I started as a veteran service officer after I got out. Um, and basically all it, a veteran service officer is someone who knows the system and they can help you navigate it, right? The system, so like, like all veteran benefits, right? Like education, yeah, medical, like absolutely. all of that. Okay. All of it, all of it, right? Like you're educated and you're credentialed and you're accredited about this, about providing representation to this in front of the system, right? So um, I worked, I was a, a representative for um, severely injured and wounded Marine coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan and to Houston, Texas. And I was working with the Marine Corps League. I was a member, I was still a life member of the Marine Corps League. And it's our alumni association, right? And nothing that binds Marines more together than the Club and Anchor. And I found that I could still be a leader, but I didn't have to. And it doesn't mean I was wearing a rank. Right. Right? And leaders don't need rank. They just need purpose. Right? Absolutely. And so my purpose was taking care of these other Marines who didn't have the capacity or knowledge or or capability of navigating the system. I'd help them file their claims. I'd help them enroll in VA healthcare. I'd help them get through, um, you know, register for school, get them, you know, help them find housing and community resources and, you know, provide them that landing spot, right? right? They had someone to call. Hey, I got a problem, right? right? At the end of the day, if you have a problem, you want to call your team leader. Hey, I got a, I need, I need leadership. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it became a role, a leadership role. And then I just graduated to other positions. I run programs for the city and county. I ran programs for the big across the state. I ran national programs, all based on my knowledge of taking care of the individual Marine. And now um, I'm no less of a veteran service officer. I just do it in a different way. Um, I focus on the active duty service member. And what the active duty service members need, right? So one, you know, transition is a huge thing. Yeah. Right? There are guys, there, there are service members that get out and some that have just a failed transition. Some, they gain traction and they find a way, right? So my responsibility now at VFW is to make sure that you have access to those resources a year before you transition out. Proactive, not reactive. Pro, absolutely. I love it. Okay. Right? If you, you want to have a battle plan and a strategy before you get out, a year before you get out, right. right? And because TAP is a commander's program, right, these senior enlisted need to be holding the commander accountable to letting those service members get to their TAP classes a year out, right? Remember, accountability is a two-way, two-way right. street. I think the Navy well, lets them go up to two years now. So I always encourage everyone to go twice. Go as early as you possibly can. And then when you have time yeah. and you're ready to take it on again, go again. And really soak yeah. it in. Yeah. 
Because yeah, because it's drinking from a fire hose, right? Right. Everything's drinking from a fire hose, so you're going to get bits and pieces. But the but where you get your help is when you is when you pr- provide the power of attorney to a veteran service officer to help you navigate the system. Then you're getting a a site by site, you know, tour of each benefit and how you apply for it, how you are accessed it, and then how it's paid out or how it's implemented, right? Everybody has that right. Everybody has that opportunity. And so that's what my job is now, is one, tap. Two, what are the needs of the fighting force, right? Like how do we represent the needs of the fighting force when we're in conversations at the Pentagon with undersecretaries, when my boss is speaking to the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, what issues are we bringing from ship to ship to shore and shore to ship? Right. Right. What do the sailors, Marines, airmen, coasties, soldiers, and guardians need? Right. Like, and how do we communicate those needs to higher command? And let them know that strategically, you may be looking at it from one way. But from the tactical level, your sailors need A, B, C, and D. And it may be a regional issue, may be a local issue, may be a force issue, but we have to address, you know, uh, mental health, access to mental health, um, sexual assault, sexual violence, um, access to care, child care, uh, access to food, access to housing, right. like... All of the, the, the issues on the GW, the issues on the TR, right? Like those things we talk about, right? right? Like, if you have a ship in dry dock undergoing repair, and it's going to be in dry dock for a couple of years, there should be no reason why we got sailors living in a com- in a construction zone, right? Right? Like, <laughs> hello, absolutely. Common sense should prevail that we don't want our service members who are going to be exposed to toxic exposure to be repeatedly exposed and expect them to perform at a high level of performance and we're not taking care of their well-being. Right. So addressing those issues are the things that we, we have to do when addressing the issues of the fighting force, right? So again, talking about E5 and below, E6 and below, right? And then um, focused on... POW MIA repatriation efforts. So the Department of Defense has an office. It's called the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, DPAA. Their whole mission, funded by the U.S. defense budget, is to locate, recover, and repatriate POWs and MIAs from every war that abroad that the U.S. has ever been in. One of my one of my roles and responsibilities is to ensure that the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, that pays all of our defense right. bills, um, funds those recovery efforts from now into forever. Nice, because there's one thing that we never do is leave leave an American behind right. ever. Right, whether we go back and get you 50 years from now, we're not leaving you right. behind. Right, right. Um, logistics may be an issue, but we'll get to you when we get to you. It's a bureaucracy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> right. Um, but not not to make light of that. It is a solemn commitment that we made when we when we raised our right hand and took the oath of enlistment, right? Yeah. So we're still doing it. And then finally, our last component of what I'm doing now 
is uh, foreign affairs. So part of my role is to be that ambassador on behalf of the veterans community to NATO, to foreign U.S. commands abroad, like U.S. US European Command, Indo-PACOM, um, PAC Fleet, um, you know, FMF Atlantic, like, and really going to speak about value of service, needs of the force, how do we provide you a better voice as your advocates, what do the service members need, what do the commanders need, and how do we be your voice on Capitol Hill when it comes to fighting for your budget, right? So one, we focus on the individual service member, but we focus on the entire force at the same time, right. including those who have fallen and not come home. Fantastic. And ensuring that our our American narrative is being heard abroad. My mind is like blown right now. Sorry. Like I, I thought I knew the concept and I was absolutely wrong. So <laughs> like I'm, I'm in awe. I think that's fantastic. All of that. And I feel terrible that I did not know enough of that already. Um, but I imagine, cause like I said, nerd alert over here. Like I, I read stuff. Um, how do we get this information out to active service members like what should they be doing to contribute to help you do your job or to find out what resources they have available to um, them or, or reach out to reach out to us vfw.org right um i run our national security and foreign affairs directorate so anything related to the active active and reserve element and to include retirees and their families you know um, we work closely with like Blue Star Families and with the National Fa- NMFA, National Military Family Association. Right. So a lot of us work together to solve these problems. So now Friday we were in the in the room with senior Pentagon officials discussing these issues with the force, these issues with the community. It's fantastic. So that when decisions are made, they know that people are watching and we're they're incorporating the feedback and the voice of the service members on the line. Are all of your team uh, veterans? Yes. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I think there's a huge, um, ho- right, hopefully misconception that a lot of the people who make decisions yeah. are civilians, meaning mm-hmm. have no connection or, or knowledge yeah. or, or experience. And and to know that like this is happening is so exciting. Like the the secretary, Absolutely, absolutely. It's like the more that we see um, veterans and prior service members in those leadership roles, the better we can contextualize the experience and decision making for the people that we're trying to recruit. Yes. Right. And I think it's important for us to continue these conversations as frequently as possible, because if information is now a way that we do we conduct diplomacy that information has to be the way that we deliver inform, deliver that understanding of what's going on to our people right. Right? right if we're giving if we're giving the information to our to our allies we need to be giving information to our people right to our resources right yeah that's right yeah because at the end of the day if if the way you leave the navy is worse of an experience than the way you came into the navy you're not going to recommend that anybody join the Navy. Yes, absolutely. Right. Recruitment, retention, all so, that. Yeah. Absolutely, God. absolutely. Like, 
Like we need to collectively, as an enlisted force, continue to maintain accountability northbound, not just be subject to a southbound. God, I love that. Awesome. Okay. I like I said, I feel like I could go forever on this. Um, I love it. I <laughs> God. Well, we could do a part. We two. could. That's a great idea. Um, if you're yeah. open to it, I would love to do that. And then, and I can invite some of my some of my my coworkers. Yes, yeah. Um, and then, like we talked about before, I I definitely want to see about getting you or you guys or you all. I don't want to say Absolutely. guys um, over to my command now that I know how close geographically we are. So, um, yeah, no, fantastic. I I cannot thank you enough. If so, real quick, is there any other like links, information, anything you would want to share to the people? Um, I'll put as much like in our show notes, but if you want to throw it in um, verbally, uh, vfw.org is you know no one did, no one does more for veterans. So we have veteran service officers on uh, twenty two installations nation globally right now. We're looking to um, to help more service members in the transition process. So if you're about to transition or you need help before or during your transition, please help, please reach out. You can reach out to me directly and I can forward you to our team. Um, but don't, don't think that you're going through the journey alone, right? You have shipmates out there, you have fellow service members and veterans that are going through, that have gone through it. They can help you through the transition and even get you ready for it. So whether you're two years out, a year out, or... You know, you're coming up on two years until retirement. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, the there's a there's a thing that I'll leave you with, but is that proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Right? Yeah. So if, if we want to perform and we want to keep the ship in top shape, then we got to plan before we leave and leave, leave the pier. I love it. So awesome. Um, VFW.org. And if you have any questions, jwilliams at vfw.org is my email. And I'll shoot you a response and I'll introduce you to our team and, you know, we'll help everybody that comes our way. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Yes, there will be part two. We will talk more. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. Like, this is fantastic. And I feel like we didn't even get to the parts of the story that I expected to, but it was still so great. Um, uh, we, can, we can dig yeah, deeper I'm in gonna, part two. Yeah, I definitely had a blast uh, hanging out with Jeremy. We will definitely be talking again. I'm trying to get him to come out to my command because just this lesson about um, the power of of just leadership at any level, I think it's, it's so real, it's so valuable. We talk about it all the time and to see it in real live action like that and, and have success with it and be trusted with it and to give that trust, it's it blows my mind because I see it and I've seen it work well and I don't see it enough. And I, but his, his entire story is fantastic. We didn't even get to all of it. And so we will, but I uh, definitely want to make sure that you all have the resources vfw.org. You can email him directly at jwilliams at vfw.org. I was really impressed to find out a lot of what VFW does that I was just completely unaware about. And I, and I, I feel like I've made a mistake and I've probably uh, not done it justice in the past for sure when when people have asked me about resources. So just even that, great. The whole thing, I had a blast. I had a good time. I can't wait to do it again. And I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. So again, just big thank you to Jeremy for agreeing to hang out with me for everything that he does for the Foundry. I I really do appreciate it. Um, And for all of you, thank you so much for listening. And don't give up the ship. 
Hey, big shout out to our level five patrons, William McIver and Victoria Livingood, to all the other patrons and everyone that supports us. We couldn't do it without you. You're allowing us to expand the platform, pay all these bills, and continue to push out just awesome content for you as much as humanly possible. And we really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much.